Welcome to the Big Unlock Podcast, where we discuss digital transformation and emerging technologies in healthcare. Here, some of the most innovative thinkers and leaders in healthcare and technology talk about how they are driving change in their organizations. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to my podcast. This is Patty, and it is my great privilege and honor to introduce my special guest today, Dr. Ashish Matreja, Chief Innovation Officer of Mount Sinai Health System in New York. Ashish, it's a pleasure to have you uh, join us, and thank you so much for setting aside the time. Patty, thanks for having me. You're well known in the industry, Ashish, but for the benefit of our listeners and viewers who may not be aware of your work, do you want to share a little bit about your role at Sinai and uh, what you're working on today. Happy to. So uh, currently I'm Chief Innovation Officer in Medicine at Mount Sinai Health System. And the goal is to really enable put digital health together for value-based healthcare and healthcare efficiency. But really my foundation was laid in Cleveland Clinic where I did my residency and informatics fellowship, uh, led on to implement electronic health record uh, for the hospital. And that got me into innovation bandwagon where got a chance to develop the first web-based paging application way back in 2006. Really could see the value in being licensed out and implemented across Cleveland Clinic Health System. And then Sanai hired me for a role where we can combine the best of digital health with the electronic health record to make it a wholesome, patient-centered experience for healthcare. So it's been just a fascinating journey, learning from everyone in the community, from startups to my partners in Node Health, and trying to make a difference. Yeah. While on the topic, do you want to just tell us very briefly what Node Health is about? Sure. Happy to. So I think one of the major gaps we see in our ecosystem is there's so much going on in digital health. But what, who puts it together in terms of saying, hey, these are the best solutions that we have to look for, but really taking a scientific approach to that. So we created this concept of evidence-based digital medicine or EMDM, where we can trust really what is working, what is not working, we create a framework for people to evaluate their technologies because then we feel comfortable in advising and bringing them into the health systems. So Node Health is a nonprofit network of societies, foundations, and health system associations. It's powered by a consortium of health system leaders. And the goal is to first promote evidence for digital health and then enable transformation. And we do that through a validation network we have but we also do that through annual conference we have as an education way for people to learn from the case studies and learn from each other what is working, what is not working. And we'll come back to that uh, that theme in a second. So, you know, in my work with uh, health systems today, we see that digital transformation is accelerating largely as a result of uh, competitive pressures, of course, helped along by the fact that we are now in the midst of a pandemic. But it seems to me that that the focus is primarily today on telehealth and digital consumer engagement, obviously because of the hard revenue dollars attached to improving access to care. But is that a fair observation? And uh, can you talk to some of Sinai's digital investments in the near term and also for the longer term as a consequence of the pandemic? Yeah, happy to. I see with the COVID phases, COVID has been the biggest transformation agent for us. There's no doubt at all. I would say the progress we saw would take few years, happened in months. But I think the COVID phases actually parallel the transformation technology that has been happening. The access was a big issue. And initially we called it the rise of the bots. The bots happened to screen patients because we did not have much um, 
triage capacity with our personal thing. But then because we had to convert rapidly our in-person visits to video visits, telehealth really became mainstream. So I think uh, consumer engagement, telehealth became mainstream because of we could not see in person. Where I think post-COVID or the tail of the COVID will take us is really take us to a world which is going to persist. If telehealth is the first peak of digital medicine in COVID, I feel the second peak is going to be digital monitoring. Nearly every patient can be monitored through a software or a hardware. That will dovetail into a population health approach. And I think uh, that's where I see uh, the biggest gain as well happening from the technologies. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned consumers, right? And I'll come back to the theme of remote monitoring and digital monitoring as well, which I think is going to be another important theme. So speaking from the point of view of consumers, how are they responding to the shift towards telehealth? Are you seeing not just the volumes showing an uptick because that is to be expected, but also the you know kind of satisfaction levels. Are they happy with the experience? Do, are, they, are they going to stay with it when things come back to normal, whenever they may be? It's interesting. I think and my wife's practice cardiology, and she was saying, all of my patients are coming back as a reopen for physical thing. And I think it's gonna, we're going to see a variable pattern. I call it a blended approach. You're going to see some patients who have tasted telemedicine and may not require that heavy physical examination or heavy touch, may be completely okay with preferring telemedicine. Some people will be equivalent, and some people will still like to come in. So I think where it becomes really tougher is now the practices patients who have tasted telemedicine will demand a mixed approach. Some patients will lean towards telemedicine continuation and some will actually go to physical. So you have to actually take all of those aspects into account. So it creates an additional layer of complexity than telemedicine only world. Yeah. Let's spend a minute on startups, right? So in this new world, obviously there's a lot of startup activity that is trying to address opportunities with digital engagement uh, touch points, right, in this new uh, virtual care environment. How do you see them holding up uh, from your standpoint? And do you see them pivoting their businesses? Are they staying the course? Are they doing something different? You have a unique perspective by virtue of being a, a chief innovation officer. Can you share your observations on that? Yeah, happy to. I think there are many startups who are suffering. If they were in a very unique niche area, and very um, surgical or something, and that's not happening, and your entire business model was dependent on that, you certainly are in a no-man's zone and don't know where to go. I've seen many startups evolve and rapidly kind of support the virtual care. I can give examples for the months and I spin out Rx Health, which I continue to guide. And uh, they have a platform approach to prescribe digital medicine directly from EHR and unify the entire ecosystem. And they rapidly extended a partnership and got a whole virtual care toolkit with national societies to support health systems. So I think startups which already had the ecosystem and the infrastructure and the platform, and uh, like in case of Rx, it was just adding a, additional tools to it, were rapidly able to do that and evolve themselves and touch like 1 million lives within three months, right? Yeah. And then startups who were very early or startups who had a very unique niche area were struggling. So we're using both patterns. But irrespective, we are seeing a pattern where consumer engagement and more than AI engagement really has become pivotal. And patients are really able to see what are, and health systems, what a good patient engagement looks like. And on demand. Yeah. yeah, interesting. I want, to touch on, I want to touch on a couple of other things. Today, in the wake of COVID-19, well, startups, by definition, they're meant to be opportunistic and they're, they're nothing if not opportunistic. 
Well, one thing that we're seeing is that there's a lot of emerging opportunity, it seems like, in addressing the immediate needs of the COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, it's a lot of apps, a lot of new solutions, and a lot of existing platforms. They have now either built or launched, uh, quote-unquote, COVID-19 applications. Now, there's a lot of questions around that. I read a study recently, I think it was done by the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, which looked at some 50 different apps. And they raised a lot of questions about the uh, evidence of effectiveness of some of these tools. And they also raised questions about you know, things like the privacy of the consumer data that they're going to uh, access. What do you make of all this? And how do you, as a chief innovation officer, especially, you know, the, the Node Health framework that you talk, how do you really adjust for all of this? I mean, make recommendations about what tools are going to work and what will not? Yeah, that's a tricky question. I think in terms of COVID, it's tougher because we don't have a legacy or a history. Yeah. Right? We don't have a time to evaluate. So here you have to really just just see what is happening real time and just make some conclusions out of that, which can sometimes be wrong. So I can take the example of contact tracing apps, which I've been engaged with a lot. And it's just a no man land right now. This is not like South Korea or China or in some cases India, where you have a government mandated app, which everyone is using. This is a free for all. And there's so many apps in the market. Many of them are not talking, most of them are not talking to each other. So what's the value in terms of public health? Right. There can be value in the personal health by guiding, but what is the value in public health space is uncertain. So I think, but you also have to take that you do not have luxury of evaluating everything. Where it comes from a health system perspective is my recommendation would be to look at patterns. Look at problem first approach rather than what's out there as a shiny object syndrome. COVID has also accentuated the problem of shiny object syndrome. Hey, take this mm-hmm. bot, it's going to solve all this issue. Right? I think we have to say, where your health system is really struggling with, right? Is it getting new patients into telehealth? Is it as you're reopening, getting patients back into surgeries or appointments? Is it your ACO population, which is really getting hospitalized a lot? Is it post-discharge care where you're really struggling or all of them, right? And then which are the solutions which actually fit into that or platform solutions which can serve all of them, right? Yeah. My recommendation would be to not go with one isolated partner like a point-and-click solution, but really look at COVID solution as a strategy to evolve post-COVID. So yeah. that's the solution which you really like to evolve and play with post-COVID. Then because there's so much time in security assessment, integration, kind of diligence and other stuff, you want to leverage it for long-term, not just for next yeah. six, nine months or so. Yeah, you mentioned contact tracing. That was the other thing that I was going to talk about. And we've been, you know, my firm's been following this and I've been following this. You know, Google and Apple came together, they launched the API with a lot of fanfare, but then ran into a little bit of challenges because, uh, you know, the public health agencies wanted location data and they didn't want to share that. So, you know, there's these questions about the applications that are going to be built on top of the APIs and how effective they're going to be. Having said all that, and, you know, despite all of the uh, challenges, it seems to me like some of these new technologies, contact tracing, for instance, have a lot of potential in future, regardless of whether it is to deal with COVID-19 as a concept, as a theme, it seems like there's a lot of potential for that. And from my experience, it looks like some health systems are doing their own contact tracing within their own population in a very limited way. Do you think that that's the way to go right now? You know, look at your own population, you know, focus on that and try to make it work. And then we'll see about what happens in the broader scheme of things. Is that what, I think it's complementary. Uh, in fact, I'm working closely with MITRE, which, as many of you know, is a nonprofit which works with the federal agencies a lot. And kind of, and, and the presentation was completely focused on 
we need to have a complementary approach for health systems and public health agencies. And I'm talking with the New Jersey uh, Public Health in New York City as well. And if we just limit the stuff to contact tracing to public health agencies, they don't have their own patients, right? So yeah. they're going to be just putting something out there, but the adoption can be very, very variable. But I'll take the example of Mount Sana Health System. We launched an initiative called Stop COVID NYC. We were able to reach out to close to 1 million New Yorkers, right? Within a few weeks, and uh, we're able to actually digitally monitor 55,000 people. So I think there's a value in having 5 million patients in your network, which you can reach out to and kind of engage with them and protect 55,000 employees. So there's a lot at stake for health systems and for self-assured employers as well. And I do think, uh, at least in the U.S., where it's more federal approach and data sharing issues and privacy concern, we cannot wait for nine months to actually have a mainstream contact tracing app universally, if at all that happens. We have to still look at, and within weeks or within days, protect our population and patients. Yeah, I think New York is a great example of public-private uh, collaboration, especially in the wake of the COVID-19 crisis. And of course, New York is also one of the most heavily impacted uh, areas in the country. And uh, there's a lot of learnings there, I'm sure, that we will unpack over the coming weeks and months and apply it across the rest of the country. Let me switch to a different topic, you know, back to the patient experience, consumer experience when it comes to uh, digital engagement. There's no dearth of digital health tools that can solve for some problem in the entire patient care continuum, especially in the context of digital engagement. At the same time, I hear all my clients and everyone I talk to, they're saying that they're struggling with creating the seamless experience that people look for, you know, something that you might be used to in an Amazon type of experience or you know, your personal banking experience, for instance. That kind of experience seems to be very, very challenging in healthcare. Why is that? Is that you know, because apps don't talk to one another? Is it because we're not designing them properly? You know, we don't understand. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So I think there are two potential reasons. I think it's, it may come there. I think one is the EHR, the APIs are now opening up. So if that's your system of record and that's where physicians are living, the patients are completely living in a patient-centered world, you have to have open APIs to share the data to actually enable that seamless thing. If you can't have open APIs, even if it is said they have open APIs and it's not easy to do that, then you can't create a customized experience because you're you know, record is completely in a proprietary system and you are not able to unlock that. That I think has been the number one major stumbling block with FIRE and other standards. I work in FIRE at scale committee for ONC, FAST committee, and I think they have been progress, but distill that what we what is possible to what is actually really feasible, what is what people are doing, like the OGAP is just a big chasm out there. So I think one is that. I think the other part is uh, there are differences in populations, whether it's underserved or not, digital disparities, and also disease-specific differences, right? Getting a primary care doctor visit is very different than having a surgical surgery done on you for orthopedics, for example, or getting a heart attack, or being in stroke or being in nursing home, right? So the context, the people around you are very different. The length of the time is very different. So there's enough variability on the patient level, on the system level, on the electronic records level, to be able to orchestrate that in a meaningful fashion and make it universal requires time and effort and yeah. investment, right? Yeah. And look at investment Amazon has to make to make it a seamless thing. Yeah. People undercount, under, they just see the experience and say, hey, let me get it without me investing $100,000 into it. Yeah. 
yeah, for a year, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. While I'm a five billion health dollar health system. So I think there is there's something to be said about investment, but also something to be invest in, invest in on getting things together, yeah, making yeah, yeah. it unified and unison rather than more fragmented. So we've had the final interoperability ruling come out in March. And uh, leaving aside the information blocking aspects of it, you know, when we talk about creating these seamless patient experiences, you think that's going to make uh, a difference? Do you see improvements coming about uh, in the experience directly as a consequence of the ruling? Yeah, I think uh, that we're going to see a lot more applications, patient-centric applications, leveraging them. And I think uh, we've been waiting for that for a long time, but I think that that will become much more mainstream now. So I think there will be uh, definitely value. And I think... Uh, the data exchange between EHRs to still will be still less, but I think uh, at least the patients will have it, hopefully, and then there can be a whole ecosystem that has to be developed around it. Right. So we're coming up to uh, the end of our time here. I just had one last question uh, for you. Now, you know, we are now in the midst of COVID-19 or, I don't know, some, you know, somewhere in the journey, but clearly there is a shift to virtual care and virtual care models have accelerated. Telehealth is mainstream, digital front doors are all the rage, and remote monitoring is gathering steam. We didn't talk much about the remote monitoring piece, so can you, you know, just to round out this uh, this discussion, do you want to spend a couple of minutes uh, talking about how that is going to change uh, the healthcare experience in future? Yeah, I think remote monitoring is probably going to become the dominant kind of a way to manage patients, right, and continuously manage patients, uh, whether it is chronic disease, and the reason I'm saying that is, till date, the remote monitoring has been suffering from two things. One is hardware-only play, and the patients may not have easy way to set it up and link to the Wi-Fi. There's a lot of uh, those issues. But with 4G devices, which can actually plug and play with hardware, you do not have anything to test or connect. Become makes it very easy. The second was reimbursement for that. So that's why it was limited mostly to ACA or post-discharge. Now with reimbursement coming from RPM codes, CCM codes, I think we're going to see a lot more mainstream implementation of that. So I think any chronic disease patients, as cardiovascular to others, will require digital monitoring. And we are doing it a lot for even many devices which do not have devices by doing software-only digital monitoring. And that is even much more affordable than you know, hardware-only digital monitoring. So where you can assess patient symptoms and other things and still track them and create rules and logic for them. So I think this combination, really, whether it's value-based healthcare, whether it is readmission reductions, whether it is payer, and then you can automatically set up triage rules or alerting rules to convert those people who are digitally being monitored and convert them into virtual visit or in-person meeting as needed, what we saw with COVID. I think we're going to see a lot more push on that and becoming things to scale and creating a lot of value for health system to decrease the cost, increase efficiency, and improve outcomes. Right. And I think the reimbursement environment is definitely improving, as you mentioned. And we saw that uh, for telehealth, of course, you know, they made some significant changes and those changes may possibly stay on uh, for the longer term. And uh, we see that, you know, the same kind of positive momentum on the remote monitoring side as well. So all that is good news, I guess, for virtual care models. Well, Ashish, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. And uh, thank you so much for taking uh, the time to join us. And I look forward to following all of your work at Sinai and Node Health and, uh, and of course, RX Health. Thank you again. It's been a pleasure, Patty. Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. 
Subscribe to our podcast series at www.thebigunlock.com and write to us at info at thebigunlock.com.